Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Amen. God is good. Uh, Psalm 34, 1 through 10 says, I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. In my desperation, I prayed, and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles. For the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds and defends all who fear him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you, his godly people. For those who fear him will have all they need. Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry. But those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. Um, I was encouraged this morning as I was reading this passage. Number one, David wrote this at a time of affliction as a testimony of the goodness of God. And the same God, the God of David, is the same God that we are here this morning worshiping. So whether you're here this morning, afflicted or not, let us remember that when we commit our lives to ceaseless praise, meaning we never stop worshiping the Lord, Um, God listens and he answers you. He brings freedom. He brings joy. He takes away shame. His angels surround you and he provides all that you need. So this morning, let's leave whatever grumbling, aches and pains, difficulties or burdens that we brought um, here this morning at the feet of Jesus. And let's taste and see that the Lord is good. And let's remember that not only is he good, because Jesus never did another thing for us besides what he did on the cross. He is still worthy of our praise. So if you'll just honor him this morning with your words as we um, continue in a time of worship. Father, we thank you that you are a good, good father. We thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, to give us hope, to give us life, and to give us freedom. And we worship you this morning. No matter what we've come in this morning with, God, we lay it at your feet and we set our eyes on you, Jesus, because you're worthy of our praise. Amen. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be in a couple different places here. Matthew 7. There we go. I want to talk about attention and prayer. I didn't misspell that. We're going after something very specific. Um, I want to talk to you about prayer this morning. And the problem with sermons about praying is that we all know that we should pray more. So uh, we sometimes hear those sermons. We're like, yeah, I already know that. And it's usually not inspiring enough to to get us to pray. We know we ought to pray more. Um, Inspiring people to pray is even harder than just preaching about praying. And some of it has to do with the fact that prayer is work. And we don't expect that it should be. We think that it should be easy. Uh, We know that we should be praying. Now, I want to talk about something which will help us in our prayer life if we choose to pray. And I hope you'll choose to pray, but that it'll help us in our prayer life. Because there's a lot of things out there which are called prayer, but are not really prayer. And uh, they're not really what Scripture would call prayer. And there are concepts that rob people of real prayer. 
Mindless repetition is not prayer. Okay? Mindless repetition is not prayer. Saying mantras is not prayer. Trying to be impressive is not prayer. Um, even trying to say things in a positive way to manipulate God, that's not prayer. But we can find out what prayer is. Uh, what I will tell you today has counterclaims in both Roman Catholicism and in the Word of Faith movement. And some of these claims make sense if you think about them, uh, but they're not what the Bible teaches. And I think we want to be those who follow Scripture rather than trying to make sense of it ourselves. Would you rather try to take a stab at figuring prayer out, or would you rather hear what God has said about prayer and do it His way? I would rather do that, I, and I think that's what uh, we would all aim to do. And I think we have to allow some of the mystery that there is in prayer after all. In the Bible, prayers are not always answered the way that they were prayed. Have you seen that? Where sometimes th- one thing's prayed for, but something else comes of it. Some of the reasons are obvious to us now, like Jesus, when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, let this cup pass. We know why that cup was not allowed to pass, right? And we're thankful for that because it's our redemption. Are you with me? We understand that in light of uh, understanding the purposes of God. And uh, some uh, prayers remain a mystery, like Paul's prayer about the thorn in the flesh. We don't, we don't know why God chose exactly to leave that, other than it tells us that it kept him humble. It kept him dependent upon the Lord. But what exactly the detailed, intricate workings of that is, we don't know. We don't exactly know why it is that God allowed that to remain, other than it helped to keep Paul humble. The reasons of God will make more sense to us when we know more about his heart and ways. I sometimes get tired of hearing people say that uh, the things God does don't make sense. They do make sense. We just don't have all of the details. Okay, If we knew more of the details, if we had that elevated perspective that he has, things would make perfect sense because God is not a God of the absurd. Of, of the absurd. He's a God of order and a God of reason, and he's given us minds to think. And so if we don't understand the reason, it doesn't mean that there isn't a reason. It just means that we don't know it yet. It's like when you tell little kids why they can't have more candy than understand the intricate workings of biology and all that that's doing to them and what they really need. They just know that tastes good, and why can't I have it? Why are you standing in my way? And uh, a good parent uh, sometimes will have to say, You don't know now, but you'll know later. And right now, you need to trust me. And even if you don't trust me, you're not getting candy. Right? That's the way that it is sometimes. Um, So we we can know in time, by and by, and in eternity, most of all, uh, God's heart and his ways. And some things that don't make sense now regarding prayer will make sense then. There are two things I want to discuss today. Um... And they stand in tension with one another. Tension is what you get when two forces are acting in opposite directions. I have a, an illustration here. Let's see if my, this isn't working. Trenton, you're going to have to help me or Joe, help me along. Right there. Here we go. All right. Can you tell what this is? This is my attempt to put tension in a way that affects us in the day-to-day living. Right now, you're under tension even though you don't feel it. Maybe you do feel tension. Maybe Maybe you, uh, you know, upset your spouse before you came, and there's tension in that relationship. Maybe you're feeling that. 
But probably uh, you don't feel this because we've always lived with it. And that's the tension that, that happens between gravity and centrifugal force. Do you know right now there are two forces that are acting upon you? One is uh, the gravitational force, and it's pulling you. It's pulling you down. It's pulling you down into your seat, and it's pulling us in other ways as we age, isn't it? The gravity is pulling on us. There was a song back in the 90s by Delirious called Gravity, and it talked about heaven is calling me and gravity is pulling me. Well, uh, here we're talking about it in a very literal sense. Tension is uh, what happens when two forces are acting in opposite directions. On the other side of things, and this lightens the load a little bit, is the fact that the earth is rotating. As the earth rotates, it creates centrifugal force. Not centripetal, centrifugal. This is the kind that pushes outward. And so uh, if there weren't gravity, like the little guy in the illustration, we would just fly off. But because there's gravity, we're kind of stuck to the earth. But if there wasn't centrifugal force, we'd be like that little splat of a guy right there in the middle. So we're thankful that we can live, and not only live, but we can thrive in the midst of tension. Tension brings balance. We have two things that seem to be opposite from each other. A lot of times if we go one direction, we end up getting into a ditch. And if we go the other direction too far, we get into a ditch. But there's this tension that works, and it helps us to thrive. I found out when I was looking at this concept, because science wasn't really a big interest of mine, but I found out that you weigh uh, a little bit less at the equator than you do at the poles. Did you know that? Because of this force. They found out that you weigh about 0.5 pounds less if you stand on the equator. So if you're looking to lose 0.5 pounds, uh, you can go to the equator today, stand there, and you might feel a little bit lighter. It's not that much of a difference. So if you weigh 200 and you want to be 199, you can break that uh, just by flying to Peru. Since we live so far north, you might find it comforting uh, to think that there's much less of you somewhere else. Right? Force out and force down hold you in place. You're not squished. You're not thrown. And this is preferable. <laughs> right? It's preferable it's not to be squished or thrown, but to stand in tension and thrive there. Thank God for that. Force out and force to hold you in place. You're not squished. You're not thrown. Even if you're not happy with your weight, it's preferable to walk in that middle ground of tension. I do wish that gravity was a little less so that it would be easier to bring the groceries upstairs. How many can I get a witness on that? Just a little less. All right, not only can we live in tension, but we can be healthy and we can thrive in the midst of tension. I haven't forgotten our verse. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Tensions are true in spiritual things as well. And so we understand that uh, God is love, but love is not God. Come on, isn't that true? Love is not God. It's not the same. Okay, God is love. Love is not God. God is love, but God is also a God of justice. He's kind, but he's also a God of severity when he needs to be. And so we hold those truths in tension with one another. And we understand that there's a balance, that if we go too far in one way, we get a God where we think there's no such thing as justice. Although I'd argue that the kind of love that God shows is a just love, and it's a pure love. And even when uh, he is correcting us, he's demonstrating his love for us. 
Okay, but uh, there are tensions nevertheless. And uh, there's an apparent tension in prayer between saying too much and not saying enough. The real tension isn't, that, isn't exactly there. The real tension is pray without ceasing, persistence, and pray without babbling, sincerity. That's the tension that I want to call us to pay attention to today. Now, I meant that last attention in the typical way. But when we're talking about tension here, <laughs> we want to talk about these two areas. Look with me at Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be in, in chapter 7 first and then chapter 6 in just a moment. <clears throat> All right, why don't we stand and let's read this. That'll give us a break to exercise the uh, feel of gravity and know that we're everything's okay. Ask and it will be given to you, Matthew 7, 7. Uh, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you for everyone who asks, receives, the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be open to you. I'll let you be seated at that. Father, thanks for giving us your word and giving us some instructions about prayer that can guide us and encourage us along, that we might know that we're praying according to your will, and in your particular way, we pray in Jesus' name. Ask. I just I think it's interesting here. It doesn't say prayer, but ask. It says Ask, and who are we to ask of? We're to ask the Father, right? He says, ask, and it will be given to you. And we look on down um, in verse 9 and 10. Uh, actually, verse 11, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So who are we asking here in this particular uh, verse? We're asking the Father in heaven, Okay. So ask. And then it says seek. What are we to seek? I think we're to seek from God what you're looking for. These are all running in parallel with one another. Some take this to uh, this seeking to mean ask plus act. Ask plus act. So as you ask, act upon that. Okay. And so uh, I'm not sure exactly about that, but if you'd like a parallel to that, it, this might be like Elijah praying on the mountain for rain, and he tells his servant, go out and look. Okay, go out and look. We've asked. Let's check it out. Let's see if God has answered yet. Okay, that's a, a show of faith. It could be that. Whatever it is, it's continuing to seek out the answer to the ask. And then uh, knock. Knocking is a way to obtain an open door. If you've followed the Lord enough, you've realized that there are at times doors that are closed to us, and we would like for God to open those doors. He knows what's best, but we ask him. We knock. It's it's interesting. I don't. This is kind of a side note, but uh, as I was looking through this, I have this resource that's called the uh, United Bible Society Bible Handbook Translators Handbook. And so, what this does is it helps translators uh, who translate the Bible to know when they're in partic- particular culture how something might be communicated. And here's an interesting thing: is that there's a lot of cultures out there in which knocking is not a thing. Did you know that? So they have to translate this in a different way there. In some places in the world, if you knock, you're a thief, and you're just checking to see if somebody's home. But if you know the person, you shout out, hello, or you cough really loud. I don't know what kind of houses these are, but it sounds like they could hear you from coughing. And I, I don't know how that went with COVID, <laughs> but <laughs> like... Nobody's answering the door. The, the culture started knocking after that. I, I don't know. 
But uh, it just is interesting to me that uh, that's the way that, so they had to translate some of these uh, verses. Uh, I can imagine some translation out there somewhere that says cough and it will be opened unto you. Uh, Interesting, isn't it? So these three verbs are um, in the present tense. And the, the communication of this is that there ought to be persistence. There's a couple things which are not said here, which are obvious to us if we think about it. Do you notice, as I said, Jesus doesn't mention the word prayer, but prayer is what he's talking about, right? How many of us knew that when we, we read, ask and it will be given to you, we're talking about prayer, okay? We're talking about prayer. Uh, and so the first thing I wanted to mention in all of this is that prayer, biblical prayer, let's go to the next slide. The biblical prayer is persistent. Biblical prayer is persistent. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. He's talking about prayer. So in in one sense, you get that the basics of relationship we have with God through Christ. Prayer ought to be simple and not complicated. Sometimes we make it more complicated than it needs to be. Like we've invented several ways and steps to prayer and, and all of that. And can we just make it simple today and understand that at the base of it all, prayer is talking to God, your Father. Okay, doesn't that like take the load off? You don't have to pray in fancy language. Pray in your own words. That's the best kind of prayer. Pray in your own words. If prayer is hard, it's not because it's complicated, but because it takes uh, energy and time. Could there be anything simpler than asking God? Most of what we need to know about prayer comes through a few basic principles. And so if we're not an expert at prayer, it's probably just because we haven't prayed. That's it. Because prayer is available to anyone who's a child of God, and you're a child of God by trusting Christ. So we're talking about a couple of these principles today. Second thing that is not said uh, clearly, it is, part of this is said clearly, but it's not quite stated in this way. When you ask, Christ encourages us to ask the Father in heaven. And what that suggests to us is that when we have these kinds of needs, that we're not accomplishing this ourselves. We're not creating the miracle. We're asking, right? That's different altogether. We're asking God to do something. We're asking him to undertake on our behalf. So, This is not making the miracle happen ourselves. The asking, the seeking, the knocking is directed to God, and God is the one who gives to those who ask. He's the one who reveals to those who seek, and he opens the door for those who knock. And I would suggest to you that if we're not doing that, then we feel like we've got life figured out, and we don't need God's help. At least we're saying that with our actions. If we don't ever pray and ask God for anything, we're assuming that we've got it. Right? Or we don't know that we can pray. Or we've refused to pray. Or maybe there's something in our relationship with God that's broken at this present moment. And so we don't pray. But I think at that level, a, a prayerless life is a proud life that says, God, I don't need your help. I've got it. We think we can do it ourselves. The trouble comes then and then we see that we can't. We need God. We need him to answer, to show, to open the door. The NLT, if we can go on to the next uh, slide here, the NLT says uh, says it this way, that small. 
Keep on asking, and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you'll find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. And the reason it's translated this way is because the verb is in the present tense. And that means that the action needs to keep going on. And here's where we often get this wrong, is we think, it says, asked, I asked once. Isn't that enough? The way that the Greek works, it's not so clear in English, but the way the Greek works, it suggests that we keep on doing these things. We keep on asking. We keep on seeking. We keep on knocking. And then uh, the answer will come. Leon Morris, in his commentary on Matthew, says, all who serve God know what it's like to be faced with doors that are closed. And it means a lot that prayer will result in opening such doors. The three expressions underline the effectiveness of prayer. Look at which way you will. Look at it which way you will. It gets things done. All three imperatives, these are commands, by the way. I didn't mention that. When it's a present, it's not only a present suggestion, it's a present imperative. Do you know what that means? This is like when you tell your kids, clean their room. Oh, that's good advice. No, they, they're not taking it as advice. You mean it as, no, really, get in there and clean your room. It's dirty, right? Uh, when he commands us to pray, when he says these things, he says it with the imperative voice, which means this is a command, and it's a command that we're supposed to follow repeatedly. I don't know if you thought about that. It's not just an invitation to pray. This is a command to pray. Well, I'll let that settle in. He says, all three imperatives are present, underlying the importance of continuous action. And so we need to do this again and again and again. Prayer is persistent. Persistent means the action needs to be, uh, it's insistent in the repetition or pressing of an utterance. Insistent in the repetition or the pressing of an utterance. We, we say Again and again. You see why these things are intention is because when we say things over and over again, we can get into a, a habit of saying them. And if we're not careful, those things can happen without meaning. Are, are you with me on that? Like when we sing worship songs, sometimes after a while, we start to think about the word. We stop thinking about the words that are being said. We think about other things because we're so familiar with the song that it doesn't connect with us anymore if we're not intentional about it. Are you with me on that? It's kind of like street signs. You drive past the signs. A new sign pops up on a building. It could be the same business, but Burger King gets a brand new logo. You don't see Burger King there at all, and then all of a sudden you see this new logo, and you're like, hey, there's a Burger King, right? Uh, sometimes because of repetitive use, we can lose its meaning. And so the first part of this um, principle of prayer is that we are persistent in prayer and that we keep on praying. Okay? And the second part will deal with the other, uh, the other issue. At times people pray once in the Bible and they receive an answer. I'd like you to notice uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel. The, uh, the other guys are saying their mantras and they're praying their prayers to Baal, asking him to answer by fire. And by the way, uh, there's a polemic in this, meaning that what Elijah is doing is actually showing the bankruptcy of Baal to do what he's supposed to do. He's not as advertised. That's what's trying to happen here. So Baal is the god of rain. He's the god of lightning and thunder. I know you think it's Thor, but it's Baal first. Okay? And so when they call out to, to their god, they're expecting him to do what he's talented to do. What he's equipped to do is bring down fire. 
They're calling. They're praying. And by the way, there's something that we hadn't thought about in this story. I don't think. I hadn't thought about it until just today. I've been through this a lot. But thinking about how lightning usually requires what in the sky? Clouds, right? Am I wrong in assuming that? I'm not strong in science, but uh, don't usually when you have lightning, you have clouds? Okay, can you have lightning without clouds? I don't know. But I'm just saying that in my experience, usually clouds and lightning go together. So these guys are not only praying in some kind of answer with the fire from heaven, which I think they expect is going to be a lightning bolt. They're not getting any answer, and the clouds don't come in. We know that from what happens later. So they've done that all day. They cut themselves. Elijah taunts a little bit. Your God might be going to the bathroom. He might be on vacation. Maybe he's sleeping. And uh, they pray their prayers for a long time and no answer. And Elijah prays what I've heard is a 66-word prayer. And immediately a lightning bolt comes from I don't know where because there's no cloud in the sky. comes directly from heaven and hits the sacrifice on the altar and consumes it. One prayer. One prayer does it. Are you with me? Okay. That's Carmel A. Carmel B, just a little bit later. Elijah goes, and uh, he's taking care of the prophets of Baal. He's got everything squared away for what's supposed to happen next. The people recognize Yahweh as God, although they're not going to follow through with commitment because they're afraid. And uh, Elijah goes, and he gets on his knees, and he prays. Do you remember this? And he tells his servant, Go check and see what's coming. And he says, I don't see anything. And he prays again. Go see what's coming. Seven times, right? On the seventh time, he comes back. I see the cloud, a cloud that looks like the size of a man's hand. Let's get going because rain is coming. Okay? So I want you to see Carmel A, okay, one prayer, and it's answered. Carmel B, seven prayers, and it's answered. The same person, the same mountain, the same occasion, Two different things take place. And so I'm telling us that not to be discouraged if you pray one time and God answers right away and you pray again and again and again and again and again and it seems like God is delaying, he still can answer. It's not a problem with your faith. It's not a problem with your location. It's not a problem with your holiness. It's that there's a certain sovereignty that works within prayer and we don't always understand that. So I want to challenge us with that thought that sometimes God may do it right away. It even happened to Jesus. Most everybody he healed, it seems like it was first time, right? And then there's the man that saw people walking like trees. Jesus touched him again, and he's completely healed, showing that there needs to be persistence in prayer. All right, so we see him praying repeatedly. Elijah prayed, uh, it says in James chapter 5, verse 17, uh, he prayed that it wouldn't rain. It didn't rain upon the earth for a space of three and a half years. And then he prayed again. And it says, Elijah prayed earnestly. And if you look at the Greek there, it says something like this. He prayed with prayer, or he prayed and he prayed. And the earth gave forth rain. I think it's talking about Carmel B. Okay? So this is persistent, earnest prayer, is willingness to be on our knees before God again and again, asking him to respond in a way that is good and right and wise. 
We know the story of the impertinent woman who uh, asked the judge for justice, and he didn't listen to her at first. She wasn't bribing him like the others, but she kept insisting, and finally he answered. We know about the friend who came to his other friend's house and said, I've got guests that have come, and they popped in on us. We weren't expecting them. Do you have any bread? And the friend wouldn't open up the door. He said, it's late at night. We don't want to be bothered by that. Cough all you want. (laughs) I'm not opening the door. And he kept coughing. He kept knocking. And the door finally was open, not because not because these people wanted to do it, and this is a contrast, by the way, not because they wanted to do it, but because they were so annoyed they felt that they had to. Now, the other side of this, the, what Jesus is trying to show us is that God is not like that. He's not annoyed with us. And if somebody who will get annoyed, they'll answer because they're annoyed. How much more will a God who loves us respond to our persistent prayer? That's the point. Shows us the truth about God here in uh, in 7, verse 8, actually, it's, it's 9 and following. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to you, to those who ask him? Okay, so he's saying here, he's showing us a truth about God. And in both of these uh, tensions we look at today, there's, there's a principle about prayer, and then there's a truth about God. And so in this truth about God, we see a contrast between the goodness of man and the goodness of God. The goodness of man, Jesus calls you being evil. You still know how to give good gifts to your kids, right? So he's showing us, and he says, if you do that, this is an argument that was often used by Jesus and others in the first century where they built from the the smaller to the greater. You, if you're like that, how much more... Will God be like this? Okay, And so he's showing us a contrast between us and God, but also a comparison. What do you think of God? Is he as good as you are? I mean, we're praying. Is God as good as you? You're pretty good, probably. Probably if somebody who, your kids or somebody else who is a dear friend ask you, or even sometimes people who you don't know that you can just see are in desperate need, God moves your heart for them. Okay? And you think, man, I'm pretty good. I'm a good mom. I'm a good citizen. I'm a good friend. We think like that. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to do those things, how much more will the Father in heaven? If you think you're pretty good, God's even better. Will he not answer us if we pray with prayer? So Christ says this to make the point that God in heaven is is kinder than we are. And we know how to do good things. Won't God do even better at it? The second thing that's kind of related to this is Jesus assumes people will be praying for provision of food, which most people through history had to look for daily. I mean, we take that for granted, don't we? Like, we're not, we're not searching for food as if it's a life and death matter. Maybe you're searching for the perfect restaurant like that, but usually it's not, I don't know where I'm getting my next meal. We don't. And even if we don't, we can kind of go to our pantry as a last resort and pull out a number of canned things that we could eat that are edible, and we'll be fine for a long, long time. But these people, many of them were day-to-day with lack of refrigeration and proper storage, day-to-day a lot of them. And they were seeking the day-to-day needs, calling upon him. When, when it says here, if you ask your father for bread, will he give you a stone? 
If you ask him for a fish, will he give you a snake? They're not asking for extravagancies. They're asking for what they need. Do you understand that? Like, God will give us what we need. He may give us what we want. Come on. I know that's not too exciting because I know what you've been praying for. (laughs) Something that you want. But think of this, that he will give us what we need. These are the necessities. Think about what the little boy had in his sack lunch when he came to where Jesus would eventually feed the 5,000. Five loaves and two fish. That's what everybody's eaten in their sack lunch. And so when they're asking for this loaf or they're asking for fish, they're asking for what daily would be their provision. So when it comes to hunger for bread, a stone is about the most useless substitute, isn't it? Like, stones aren't edible. Right? I think the comparison is there because some stones could look like bread if you're hungry enough. (laughs) And then what about fish? He says, if you ask for a fish, would he give you a snake? A snake could be dangerous. It could bite you. The Father won't give you something useless, and he won't give you something harmful. Persistence when we pray means that we ask until we receive or until you know that God's answered. This was part of what was called praying through at one time in our Pentecostal heritage. We prayed and we prayed until we heard from God. And if you you have a need, continue to pray for it until you receive an answer. That answer might be yes, it might be no, or it might be this instead of that. Are you with me? Okay. Yes, we love that. No, we don't like it so much, but we know God in his wisdom is trustworthy and his nose. And then this instead of that might be something where he says, I'm not going to give you that, but what I'm going to give you is better suited for who you are, and God knows how to do that. I remember um, praying with my mom. I was just a little boy. I was praying for one of my brother-in-laws. I think I was probably three or four. I just have seemed to have that timeline in mind. We were kneeling beside my bed and praying for my brother-in-law to become a Christian. He'd gotten hurt in the church, and he was far away from God, and he made comments about Christians and pastors, and he was real bitter. And so we were praying. For, that all happened, I think, before I was born. But we were praying for him uh, when I was three or four. When I was in college, I found out that he had become a Christian. So I didn't go to college. I wasn't a savant, so I didn't go to college at age seven or 12. or I was 18 like everybody else or 19. And so think about those years. 16 years later, and that's not even, some people have been praying a lot longer than that. But I know my sister, my mom, probably both my parents persisted in prayer for my brother-in-law, and he came to know the Lord. Romans 12, 12 says, rejoice in hope, endure in hardship. I think it's up there on the screen, or it should be. Let's go to the next one, Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope, endure in suffering, Persist in prayer. Persist in prayer. This is God's call for us. Second, biblical prayer is sincere. Biblical prayer is sincere. Next slide. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. When you pray, this is a chapter before. If you just go back, land right on the same verse we were on in chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. Chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. When you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans. For they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need 
before you ask him. What God wants from us in our prayer life is sincerity, and that's what this is about. The second part is that pray and pray and pray, yes, but be sincere in your prayer. It's not just repeating audible phrases or syllables. There needs to be sincerity in it. We need to pray as though we're talking to God, to a person. You understand, uh, he wants us to pray that way. He wants us to be sincere. I found out the word sincere means genuine, not hypocritical, not deceitful, not simulated. Like you can see a lot of people around the world simulating prayer. They're going through the motions. But there's no real communion on an intellectual and spiritual level with, the, with God, with the real God. Sincere, do you know where that comes from? It was uh, Greek for sena sera, actually Latin. Uh, originally a compound in Latin which meant without wax. So I've heard of this described of jars, but the uh, resource that I found this in is speaking of honey that's not mixed with wax. It's genuine. It's unmixed. And so when we pray, God wants pure prayer from us. Noah Webster, everybody's heard of Webster's Dictionary, I assume. Noah Webster was a devout Christian. In fact, if you look at his dictionary, I think it's around 1789, if I'm not mistaken. But if you look at his dictionary, it might be prior to that. Uh, he uses a lot of examples from Scripture or Christian living under his definitions. You know how sometimes they have, like, the word, and then they have the word used in a phrase. Okay, have you seen that in dictionaries before? So Noah Webster... Almost without fail, he has his, his words used in a Christian phrase. This isn't a British dictionary. This is an American dictionary. We're going to do it with Scripture. Okay, and I'm not putting the British down. They had, they had their uh, uh, great lexicographers just like uh, Noah Webster. But uh, he decided that he was going to use this. And here's what he says uh, according to the word sincere. This is under his definition of the word sincere. No prayer can avail with a heart-searching God unless it is sincere. That's in Noah Webster's dictionary, his original one. I don't think you'd see that in the Merriam-Webster, but you'd see it back then. Because what he understood was we need to be sincere in our relationship with God. Now notice here in chapter 6 and verse 7, it says, this is right before the Lord's Prayer. It says, and when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans. Uh, Leon Morris says in his commentary, their approach to prayer is characterized by two colorful terms. First, babbling, a noisy flow of sound without meaning, and polylogia, which means much speaking, many words. It's an approach to prayer which values quantity and perhaps volume rather than quality. Listen, if anybody knows how to pray loud, it's Pentecostals. Okay, I know for sure. But we don't get heard because we can pray loud. I learned that a long time ago that that's not what gets the heart of God. He doesn't need volume. He can hear a gentle whisper. What he needs more than anything, what speaks louder with God is sincerity, not volume. Volume's fine. Pray loud if you want to pray loud. But what really gets God's attention is when it comes from the heart. It says don't babble like the pagans do. Babel, let's go to that. I have a definition for that for you. I think it's next. Babbling. It literally means to say bata. Whatever that means. Bada, 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 bada. Okay. Uh, 
Okay? It sounds like speaking in tongues. I'm not making fun of that. It sounds like that, but it's not that. This word uh, means, uh, the NIV translates, keep on babbling like the pagans. KJV says, use vain repetitions. ESV says, heap up empty phrases. New American Standard, thoughtless repetitions. New English translation, babbling repetitiously. Don't do that. Uh, Good news translation, use a lot of meaningless words. Bible for everyone, pile up a jumbled heap of words. Don't do that when you pray. This uh, bada logio, which is the, the word to speak bada, um, to speak much or extensively with possible added implication of meaninglessness, to utter senseless sounds or to speak indis- uh, distinctly and incoherently. So what this suggests is empty, cliche prayers which rely on formulaic speech, okay, rather than speaking from the heart. It's not really suggesting here even that repetition is bad. Can you hear me for a moment? I hope you're hearing me the whole time, but hear me closely for a moment. It's not saying repetition is bad. It's saying meaningless repetition carries no weight with God. That's different. You can say the same things over. Like you, can't, you don't have a quote on how many times you can say the name Jesus in your prayer, right? But if you start saying his name meaninglessly, it doesn't carry weight, do you understand? This is a important, a really important point that Christ is trying to make. Empty cliches don't carry much weight with God. He cares about what is in the heart. Repetition's not bad. It's empty repetitions which are checked. Even the most seasoned prayer can find themselves saying empty phrases. He says babbling's what pagans do. The phrase means... Uh, Gentiles, pagans, heathens, those that don't know God, uh, those that don't conceive of God as one with whom they could love and talk. And so they say phrases which are supposed to compel God, little magic phrases that are supposed to move him. But they treat praying like a, a bank of formulas. The names of God have some kind of weight with him and petitioner, petitionary formulas or words of magical power. They had little uh, amulets that had words that you should say when you needed a particular answer. And so if you said those words, you could get power over that particular deity and they would have to move on your behalf. That's a pagan way of thinking. If you say the right thing enough times, that God might do something. They think they're heard for their number of words. But I would consider it like this, and I'm sorry, I hope this doesn't bring prayer down, but can you imagine the difference between trying to purchase something with real money or going to the store and pulling out your Monopoly money and going to pay with that. I know we're not on the gold standard anymore, and I know our money is what our government says it's worth, right? But it still has some value that stands behind it. So when we pull out those dollars, it has purchasing power. Understand? It has something behind it that says there's meaning here. The Monopoly money is great for the game of Monopoly, but not in real life has no purchasing power. It's like empty words. God says we have to come with a heart and speak with our heart when we pray. It's not about the volume of words or even the um, repetition of words. It's about praying with a sincere heart. Vain repetition should be taken as emphasizing vain and not just repetitions. 
Sometimes we see this um, in one branch of Christianity, and we probably think of this immediately. Um, when we think about praying our Father, do you know the Lord's Prayer is not supposed to be said mindlessly? We don't say it mindlessly. In fact, he's not even telling us a prayer that we ought to pray. He's saying pray like this. Okay? It's a, it's a pattern more than it is a formula. We don't get special credit because we've prayed with the exact words Jesus used. We don't get that if we're not praying with our heart. And how about Hail Mary? There's something I find theologically wrong with that prayer. But you can hear sometimes people having prayed these things with mindless repetition, acting as if it somehow moves God. And if what I'm hearing from Jesus is true, and it is, if I'm understanding it correctly, God is not interested in meaningless repetitions. He wants our heart. He wants us to speak from the heart. As if voicing syllables, you know, somehow moves God. I'm not against even praying written prayers. I've often done that as I was, if I've been asked to pray at an event, you can, you can say the Lord's Prayer, you can pray the Psalms. The problem is not that they're someone else's words or prepared ahead of time. The problem is saying them without meaning them. I've been around uh, Pentecostal spirit-filled believers my whole life. And in my experience, I've wanted to be authentic. Uh, excuse me. In my experience, we have wanted to be so authentic that sometimes we've shirked from all form and we've chosen to be spontaneous. We think it always, we always get authenticity that way. If I had time this morning, I'd tell you how I think depth comes from reflection. Sometimes we've been guilty of being cliche because we insist on being spontaneous. We were part of a uh, group of churches back when I was a youth pastor in which they so emphasized spontaneity, they said you should never prepare for a sermon. You just go into the pulpit and ask God to meet you there and open your mouth and he'll speak. And here's what I witnessed is that those preachers, every time they preached, always said exactly the same thing. There was no variety. I wondered how the churches survived in that. Now, I'm not saying God can't use a person. I'm, I'm sure he did use people in that way. But what I found is that when you don't have time of reflection, you tend to say the same things over and over again. And that, to me, is not the same thing as sincerity. Sincerity. I've heard a lot of prayers pray. Sometimes I've heard, in my own experience and observation, there's a lot of mindless repetition in Pentecostal prayers. Will you hear my heart for a moment and please take it for what I'm trying to do here. Sometimes phrases can be spoken from the heart, but sometimes we fall into the patterns of saying the same things over and over without really being thoughtful. We can say, oh God, as we pray, but not mean that. Are you, are you with me? Or the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. Yes, if you're thinking about how the blood of Jesus applies to a situation, pray that. But sometimes we use these as filler phrases, and they don't mean anything. Or even in Jesus' name, do you realize what in Jesus' name means? It means the authority of Christ stands behind it. We're asking for him who has all power to undertake on our behalf. And we're doing it because he's given us access to the Father through him. I want to be clear about this. I'm not saying these things shouldn't be said or can't be said or haven't been said in thoughtful prayer. I'm saying that I have heard these phrases said in a kind of repetitious filler prayer. 
only God can judge the heart, but I'll tell you from my own experience, I've caught myself using vain repetition. And if that sounds critical, I want you to understand I'm not thinking critically about other people's prayer. What I'm trying to do is address what I think Jesus means here. And I realize that this can happen even with the most sincere believers if we're not praying prayers which are sincere. Don't stop saying these things, but say them meaningfully. If you don't know how to pray uh, or how to start, start off with, Father, I really don't know how to pray about this. Why don't be real? Lord, I don't know how to pray about this. Remember Jehoshaphat's prayer? It's one of the great prayers in the Bible. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's a great prayer. Why? Because it's, it's sincere. It's true. It's from the heart. I think these are the kind of prayers that we ought to pray. Let's be real with God. Let's cut out the fluff of our praying and only say what we mean. I remember hearing a writer uh, said one time, I, I think it was Hemingway that said this. He said, the secret of good writing is uh, all you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. Okay, that's, that's what he said good writing would be. And could I suggest to you that I think praying starts here too. Pray the truest sentence you know. If you don't know how to pray, pray the truest sentence you know. Lord, I'm scared. I don't know what's coming. I think you have it under control. I believe that you've got it under control. Oftentimes in the Psalms, we see the psalmist start out with, why have you forsaken me, O God? Or where are you, O God? Or how long, O Lord? Things like that, right? Have you ever noticed that by the end of it, as they've prayed honestly, God changes their heart? Lord, you will be victorious over the nations. You will be victorious in this situation. I've cried out to you, and you've lifted me out of my affliction. That's usually how those prayers end. It starts with honesty. It ends in triumph. And I think that's a great pattern for our prayer, praying. First scripture we looked at in Matthew 7, 7 through 8, challenges us not to stop praying. The second scripture in Matthew 6, 7, and 8 challenges us not to stop thinking. Be sincere in your prayer. I have to take just a moment, if you'll allow me to. No objections, okay? To address a particular facet of prayer, um, which Paul calls praying with the Spirit, or praying with groanings which cannot be uttered in words. Because that, I mean, if you think about it, this could conflict with that. Because when we pray in the Spirit, we don't pray with our intellect. We're praying as the Spirit leads with words which cannot be uttered. Paul says it this way, if you could put this up on the screen for us, 1 Corinthians 14, 14 through 15. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Anybody know what that means? That means I don't know exactly what it is I'm praying. I'm yielding to the Holy Spirit. So I can't figure it out. I can't distinguish it. The Lord could reveal it, but I'm praying a mystery. So what shall I do? I'll pray with my spirit, and I'll pray with my understanding. So this is a special facet of prayer. This is not the same thing as saying bata. This is something altogether different because the spirit is speaking constantly meaningful words, and he does that through us. Linguists have done studies on speaking in tongues and found that even though we don't understand what's being said, this follows the patterns of normal language. We don't understand it, but there's something about it. So we understand the Spirit 
speaks, the Spirit makes known. He has, he has intellect as a person. And what it does is it takes limits off our praying so that we can pray for things the Spirit knows that we don't. And it takes the distortion out of praying so that we can pray the perfect will of God. Sometimes when we pray, and we're praying as sincerely as we can, um, a little bit of flesh gets mixed in. Anybody been there? Like, I remember those, <laughs> that one psalm, and I can't think of it at the moment, the number. Oh, Lord, will you dash their babies against the rocks? Like, that's a little flesh getting in to your prayer. Uh, but uh, God's able as, as we pray in the Spirit, He's able to help us to pray the perfect will of God. So praying in tongues is not babbling, it's Spirit-directed prayer, and it deserves a special place. What Jesus is referring to here is what Paul would call praying with the understanding. We can pray in the Spirit, but we should also pray with our understanding. What God doesn't want from prayer is empty speaking like the mindless repetition of phrases. He wants us to talk from the bottom of our hearts. He wants truthful communication with him. The pagans think that they'll be heard for their speaking regardless of the content of the words. We could think that our speaking is a kind of currency. Prayer is talking with God from the heart, looking to him as helper, loving him as savior, knowing him as friend. It communicates what um, it is communication which challenges things and changes things. And cliches won't get it done. Mindless repetition won't won't do it. It insults the personhood of God. It may be closely related to taking his name in vain, saying things as if he were not a real person that we're talking to. Yes, God is personal. What's the truth about God? It's this. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. That's the reason that Jesus gives for not using meaningless repetitions and formulas because God already knows. He doesn't need to be compelled by our magic phrases. God is personal and he knows already what you need. He has foresight to know what we need not only today but tomorrow. Are you with me on that? This is the meaning of provision, right? If you break the words apart, let's be able to see forward what we need. God knows in advance what it is that we need. And why is it this oftentimes people stumble over this like why do we even need to pray if he already knows what we need? He can just do it. And we probably thought that. Don't raise your hand, but anybody thought that before? Like why do we even need to pray? He already knows what we need. Well, um because when we pray, we're not giving God information that he doesn't have. It's not about information. God knows it all already. Right? Okay, so we're not giving him new information. Uh, and still less, prayer is not a technique for getting things from God. The more words you put in, like a vending machine, the more you get out of him. But as a, an expression of the relationship of trust, which flows from knowing God as Father. The pattern prayer, which follows, illustrates how such relationships work. Our Father in heaven would you let your name be holy? Not just let, cause your name to be holy in the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we pray. Have you thought about this? Everything we pray for causes us to be more God-trusting and God-centered in our living. We have eternal things we pray about and temporal things. Eternal things are like 
we want our children to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, or our friend, or we want to be better follower of Christ. Those are eternal things. They matter for eternity. We pray for other things like, Lord, I got a flat tire. Can you, can you send somebody? <laughs> my phone's dead. My tire's flat. I'm stranded. Could you send some help? And you know that when you get to heaven, that's going to be the furthest thing from your mind is that you had a flat tire on a particular Tuesday. But it's still this kind of raw material that life with God is made of. Think about it. Temporal things are just the materials out of which life of faith is built. Trusting God when you don't know where your next paycheck is coming from. We look to him and we know that we have a kingdom which will not be shaken. But dependence on God for those trials that pass is the terrain of living for God. So what is it all for? All of this is for knowing him. All of this is for knowing him. When you pay your IRS bill, part of living in this life in which we know God. Sorry to bring that up. Um, As we go through the joys of life and the lows of life, this is the terrain in which we navigate our relationship with God. There are some things that are eternal things, as I, I said, where eternity hangs in the balance. Crucial moment of decision, the salvation of people we care about, the lost everywhere, coming to know Jesus, praying for things like this, reminds us that God is the center, not only of our lives, but also everyone's. Until they find him, their lives are out of balance. And so we pray. We pray not to inform God. Don't pray like the Gentiles who think that they'll be heard for their much speaking. We don't have to have much speaking. God can answer one prayer like that. He can answer it before we even ask. But he invites us to ask because it's relational. Okay? And some things he won't give us until we ask because he wants to be a part of our lives. You understand? If you're a parent, maybe of adult children, you know that. I'm not going to give until they ask. I don't want I'm going to give them a certain measure of freedom. They can figure it out or they can ask. And then when they ask, generally there's a disposition to help. And that's what God is like. He wants to help. So we pray, not to inform, but that our whole world might be saturated with God, his kingdom come, his will be done. So there's the tension. We're in our conclusion now. We've been between uh, persistence and sincerity. If you forget either side of these, you rob you get robbed of the transformative power. Without persistence, we find that we've not wrestled through an issue with God. It may be that he wants to teach us something through the course of prayer. Have you thought about that? As you're praying, God is changing you. As you're praying, God is doing something in you. It may be that he wants to teach you something through the course of prayer. It may be that he wants to change you. It may be that an answer waits for a specific time. Whatever the reason Scripture says, be persistent in prayer. Ask, 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 and you will receive. Seek, 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 you will find, and so on. If you forget sincerity, your prayer life will be shallow. It could become like those cliche conversations we have with people we barely know. How are you today? Good. Nice weather. Great weather. And it remains shallow. You don't really talk about anything meaningful. You don't know that person. They don't know you. You've talked in cliches. There's been no real meaning. And what God invites us to is real prayer, not in which we exchange cliches, but in which we deal with him at a heart level. 
There's a vibrancy and there's a depth to that. Real communication with God in prayer, which is authentic. Be sincere with God and see if he doesn't meet you in prayer. Our first prayer always should be, God, be merciful to me, a sinner for Jesus' sake. Something like that. I need your forgiveness. And trust him and follow him. Every other prayer after that is prayer to God as a member of the family of God. You can ask him for your needs. You can pray for your family, your kids, our world, this church, the lost, a closer walk. Just a closer walk with thee. Right? Those things, God loves to answer. But I would ask that we pray persistently. If you've not seen the answer, don't bank on this shallow. The I heard this so much as I was growing up that it was taught that if you pray twice for the same thing, you lack faith that he's heard you the first time. Okay, that makes sense. I have to be honest with you. It makes sense. If we really believe God has heard us, that we might just leave it right there. But the Bible says differently. Are you with me? If you nod your head, I'd be done quicker, right? So he wants us to pray persistently. He's told us to pray persistently. We don't get to figure it out on our own. We're doing it his way. So we pray again and again and again until we hear an answer. Yes, no, this instead of that. Okay? We also need to pray sincerely. It's not just repetition that gets God to move. Like if we just keep going and saying things, that somehow he's compelled to move by that. It's got to be sincere. And sometimes there are those moments in life when the urgency of the need brings those two things together in perfect unity, that you have no problem being sincere and you have no problem repeating that prayer because it's urgent and you need God to move. And just stay on your knees until he answers. And it says that when we ask, we'll receive. Now, if you can think of an exception to that, I have to submit to you there is sovereignty in God answering prayer. Okay? Just realize he knows what he's doing. But here's the basic and the general expectation is if you pray, expect God's going to hear you. Amen? Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your gracious attention. That's a lot, and it's heavy. But I trust that today we can take these two things that are in tension with one another and um, forge out of it a better prayer life if we'll put it into practice. All right. I said earlier that if you had a prayer need, there would be time at the end of the service. I'm going to invite you to make an altar at these steps or at your chair. And let's take a few moments to put into practice praying. Pray truly. You, you know what I'm saying by that? Pray a true statement today. Where you're at, Lord, here's where I'm at. I thought I was further along, and I'm not. Lord, I've sinned against you. Lord, I need your help, but I don't know where this is coming from. Lord, I've been struggling lately. I'm not feeling it. Lord, you're great, and you're good. That can be a sincere prayer. Like, wherever you're at today, pray honestly with God. And let's, uh, let's give him a few moments before we go from this place. Amen. These altars are open. Please come. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.